0: Trainingport.net presents Business Aviation Training Report. Hello and welcome to the Business Aviation Training Report. I'm your host, Brent Fishlock. This is a monthly look at events unfolding in the business aviation world and is produced by the leader in online training for business aviation, Trainingport.net. Thank you for listening and thank you for talking about this podcast with your aviation colleagues. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for business aviation operators, management, their support staff, maintainers, and pilots. We will discuss topics that are important to you as a business aviation professional. We will answer listener questions and anything else you suggest. So send us your suggestions and questions. You can email me at podcast at trainingport.net. That's podcast at trainingport.net. You are flying level. At Cruz altitude, and there's an explosive decompression. The cabin air fogs, the temperature drops rapidly, and the sound of air rushing out of the fuselage is extremely distracting. The newspaper you are reading is now flying around the cockpit, but you can't see it due to the fog, and it distracts you even more. The second scenario is less obvious. While in the climb, the crew starts to feel odd, but they're not sure why. A master warning sounds, Cabin altitude. The co-pilot pulls out the checklist. ATC calls, asking the crew to switch to another frequency. What was the frequency, asks one pilot. The sound and disruption of a decompression would startle any seasoned aviator as much as a new person to our industry. Most of us will never experience it for real. Less obvious, gradual decompressions have been harder to detect by crews and have resulted in unconsciousness. Today's topic is oxygen use in the flight levels. According to some research, business aviation has a poor record when it comes to oxygen mask use and compliance. A 2010 study by the Embry-Riddle University in Florida found that more than 60% of business jet pilots do not use oxygen masks when required by the FAA regulations. Hundreds of pilots were surveyed. Here is some of the data collected. Only 21% of Part 91 respondents indicated they always use oxygen when one crew member leaves the cockpit. Above 35,000 feet. 10% reported occasional use, 25% said rarely, and a full one third responded never. Above 41,000 feet under Part 91, the number who always use oxygen is only 18%. Occasionally, less than 1%, 8% said rarely, and 28%, more than one quarter, responded never. Part 121 respondents were higher with 39% reporting always using oxygen when required above 25,000 feet and only 50% above 41,000 feet. Part 135 pilots stated that 21% always use supplemental oxygen when only one crew member is at the controls above 25,000 feet and 18% continuously use oxygen when flying above 35,000 feet. In every category, the respondents' percentage of compliance with the rules is less than half, and in many categories, the compliance level is less than one-quarter. So it's pretty safe to say there is a culture of non-compliance with regards to oxygen use, according to this survey. What are some reasons why pilots don't wear the oxygen mask when they should? The mask itself can be uncomfortable, especially for long flights. Communication with the other crew member and ATC is more difficult. The oxygen bottle must be monitored for quantity level and refilled as necessary. Oxygen toxicity could be a concern. Oxygen toxicity occurs after prolonged flights at high altitudes using a high oxygen concentration, which can produce lung infection or bronchial irritation. A less severe health concern could be oxygen mask hygiene. Some aircraft have automatic descent capability. The Gulfstream G450 and 550 have a system where if the aircraft is operated at or above flight level 400 with the autopilot engaged and a cabin pressure low message is displayed, the autothrottle will go to idle, set a speed of 340 knots, the autopilot will turn 90 degrees left and the aircraft will set a level off altitude of 15,000 feet. At 15,000 feet the aircraft will maintain 250 knots. That's pretty impressive. Although extremely rare, cabin depressurization occurs probably more than you think. According to the Aviation Medical Society of Australia and New Zealand, about 40 to 50 rapid decompression events occur annually worldwide. So that accounts for the rapid decompression events. Therefore, explosive and gradual types of decompression add to that total. Obviously, chances are low on any individual flight. However, they do occur. So let's talk about the different types of decompression. The terminology may differ from country to country, so bear with me. The types are explosive, rapid, and gradual decompression. Explosive decompression occurs at a rate faster than that at which air can escape from the lungs, typically in less than a tenth to one-half of a second. The risk of lung trauma is very high, as is the danger from any unsecured objects that can become projectiles because of the explosive force. A heavy fog may immediately fill the cabin as the relative humidity of cabin air rapidly changes as the air cools and condenses. Rapid decompression typically takes more than one tenth to 1 half of a second. This allows the lungs to decompress more quickly than the cabin. The risk of lung damage is still present, but significantly reduced compared with an explosive decompression. Slow or gradual decompression can occur slowly enough to go unnoticed and might only be detected by aircraft warning systems. This type of decompression may also come about from a failure to pressurize an aircraft as it climbs to altitude. An example of this is the 2005 Helios Airways Flight 522 crash in which the pilots failed to verify the aircraft was pressurizing automatically and then failed to react to the aircraft warnings. They never donned their oxygen masks and eventually lost consciousness. The aircraft crashed after it ran out of fuel while flying at cruise altitude. Pressurization issues at lower levels can also provide challenges to flight crew. In 2014, a single engine TBM-900 operated at flight level 280 encountered a series of crew alerting system messages. The single pilot operator identified a pressurization problem and requested flight level 180. The pilot did not don an oxygen mask, nor did the checklist require it at that time. It was only a recommendation. Data recovered from the wreckage indicated a fault with the overheat thermal switch, which resulted in a shutdown of the engine bleed air supply to the cabin pressurization system. Without a bleed air supply to maintain cabin pressure, the cabin altitude would have increased to the altitude of the outside environment over a period of about four minutes. Over the next two minutes and 40 seconds, ATC noticed diminished function in the pilot with regard to radio communications and operation of the radio equipment. The pilot was known to be diligent with checklists and verifying that the pressurization equipment was operational on previous flights. He had recently completed training which included the pressurization system. Perhaps he was distracted by the multitude of CAS messages, however he did ask for a lower altitude right away, although it was flight level 180. A fast decompression at altitude can provide challenges in that crew members have to get their masks on in a certain amount of time. I said in the last podcast that human factors research indicates that response time is longer for unexpected events than for expected events. When a flight crew is confronted with a sudden abnormal event, responses are more likely to be delayed or inappropriate and a reaction time of 8 to 10 seconds may not be unusual. Okay, with this research in mind, you are flying at flight level 410, you wear prescription glasses or sunglasses like I do, and the pressure vessel is ruptured by a section of fractured turbine blade from one of the engines, which just recently happened to an extremely reliable engine. What is the time of useful consciousness in this case? The FAA says approximately 13 to 18 seconds. Obstacles that will slow you down getting your mask on in time could include your reaction time to realize what has happened and what needs to be done. Let's use half of what the research says and say it takes four seconds for you to realize what is happening. Debris flying around the cabin. That newspaper you were just reading is now a missile. Let's add two seconds. Physically putting your hand on your mask. Do you fly multiple types? Let's add one second to the time. Was the mask packed in its holder correctly? Do you check the mask during pre-flight? Does the mask webbing inflate correctly with no snags? It inflates flawlessly. One second. Oh shoot, I forgot to take off my glasses. Add one second. It's now on. Take a breath. One second. Those factors add up to 10 seconds to get the mask on. If your initial reaction time to the decompression is the higher average time of 10 seconds, then you may have three seconds remaining of the expected time of useful consciousness to get your mask on. There is no extra time here. Aviation professionals, please recall that this podcast is brought to you by the leader in online training for business aviation, trainingport.net. Let's change gears for a moment. In the news is a segment of the podcast where I talk about other happenings in aviation. The FAA is changing the Matar coding for snow pellets and small hail, both of which use the code GS. According to the FAA, the reason for the change is to clarify each precipitation type, which will allow flight crews to apply the appropriate allowance times or holdover times. Going forward, GR will refer to all hail of all sizes. Therefore, all reports of hail must include hailstone diameter size in the remarks section of the metar or specie in increments of one quarter inch. For example, when small hail less than one quarter inch in size is occurring, the hailstone size will be reported in the remarks as GR less than one quarter inch. Small hail will also result in an issuance of a specie. Aircraft are not permitted to operate in large hail. However, many can operate in small hail with de-icing and anti-icing procedures. Snow pellets will be coded as GS. Holdover times for snow pellets can be found in Table 28 of the 2018-2019 FAA Holdover Time Guidelines document. This new information can be found in the FAA's Information for Operators, or info number 18011, dated October 10, 2018. Refer to the show notes in our blog at trainingport.net slash podcast for a link to this information. Okay, back to the podcast. The video I always remember from training is the black and white video where a trainee is in the decompression chamber with a safety person, and he is waiting for the decompression event to happen. He grabs the masks as soon as it drops, but he can't get his mask on properly in time before becoming unable to help himself. This guy knew it was going to happen. That's got to make you think that if he knew it was going to happen and he couldn't do it, will I get my mask on before I pass out? Yes, the mask was an old model, but like I said, he knew it was going to happen. I put a link in the show notes to this video. If you fly at 43,000 feet or above, you have no margin for error. Time of useful consciousness is nine to 15 seconds. No slip ups, no mask webbing snags, no extra debris distraction. If the rupture is a window in the cockpit, this is probably going to be a very challenging situation. The assumption is that if you're required to wear the mask while at the controls at the high flight levels, you are. This is the professional thing to do. United States NTSB member Robert Sumwalt made a poignant written statement in the Bedford, Massachusetts crash regarding professionalism that I featured on a previous podcast, which said, I hope the lessons from this crash can be used. To emphasize the critical need to combat complacency, eradicate intentional non-compliance, and perform like true professionals. Passengers who place their lives in the hands of flight crews deserve and expect no less. It's hard to argue with science, and the science says that by 10,000 feet ASL, the partial pressure of oxygen is low enough that all pilots will experience mild hypoxia and some will become symptomatic. The International Business Aviation Council, or IBAC, recommends that the pilot at the flight controls of an aircraft shall use an oxygen mask if the aircraft is operated above flight level 410 or if one pilot leaves the flight deck for any reason above flight level 350. What are some strategies to give yourself the best shot at survival? Wear the mask when required. Ask for theatrical smoke in the simulator. This was great training experience for me to get used to the mask. Operate the simulator with the mask on. My experience is that there are communication challenges to say the least. What is your oxygen mask preflight? Do you do it every time? It is believed the Payne-Stewart Lear 35 accident had little or no oxygen on board. Does anything sit around your mask such as glasses case, food items that could get in the way of the mask deployment? Some masks have doors that open upwards to allow the mask to come out of its storage housing. This area must be clear of objects. If you wear glasses, this may slow you down during your mask deployment. Wear the mask in the simulator with your glasses to see how it fits. Everyone has individual indicators of hypoxia. Mine is tingling fingers. I know this because I experienced training using an oxygen depletion system while flying a simulator. The International Business Aviation Council also recommends L2 chamber training. The NTSB says that investigations of accidents in which flight crews attempted to diagnose a pressurization problem or initiate emergency descent instead of immediately donning oxygen masks following a cabin altitude alert have revealed that even with a relatively gradual rate of decompression, pilots have rapidly lost cognitive or motor abilities to effectively troubleshoot the problem. I've talked about a few different scenarios today, but I hope that the takeaway is simply that we must follow our training to ensure the safety of our passengers, ourselves, and our families. That's our podcast for today. We will post show notes and more information on our blog at trainingport.net. Thank you for talking about this podcast with your aviation colleagues, and please rate us on iTunes. We would love to hear your suggestions for future podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Brent Fishlock. The Business Aviation Training Report is brought to you by the leader in online business aviation training, trainingport.net. Thank you for listening to the Business Aviation Training Report. For more information on each episode, visit us at www.trainingport.net slash podcast. Trainingport.net, helping business aviation professionals excel.